Hi. Hi. All right, we are continuing in the book of John tonight with a focus on what Jesus does next in his ministry. We talked last night about the absolutely ridiculous nature of this book. The idea is that God became man and stepped into our darkness and into our brokenness and into our sin and into our chaos. Just like a famous painter painted a painting and then painted himself into the frame. Why? Because he saw that you and I had been deceived, that Satan had taken advantage of us, that we were lusting after the job of God. We wanted to be like him, and in doing so, we actually rebelled against God. Well, that's a problem, because when you rebel against God, our communion with God, our, our relationship with God, God is perfect, and he's holy, and he's just. And so we, as broken creatures, could no longer be around God, but that's the very reason we were created, And so God becomes man in the person of Jesus to rectify and to fix the problem. And the book of John is just telling this story. And tonight we're going to talk about, we talked about truth last night. And and if Satan were crafty and clever like he is, he would try to use every analogy that God gives us to understand himself and twist it. So if God calls himself a good father, of course the clever serpent is going to try to twist what a good father means. And it's going to be confusing for a lot of us. If, If God uses the analogy of a marriage banquet between a man and a woman to understand how much God's covenant means to us, then of course Satan's going to attack marriages with a divorce rate around 52, 53%. And last year, you want to know what's ironic? The divorce rate in America actually went down. Do you want to know why? People just stopped getting married. We have so lost the confidence in the institution of marriage that people are just cohabitating, not even getting married anymore. So it's confusing for a lot of us who are hearing this idea that God loves me like a, well, like a groom loves his bride. And we go, well, that's confusing. Because when I look at the people in my life and the marriages in my life, they don't seem to be very covenantal. They don't seem to be very committed. So does that mean God's not very committed to me? And then Jesus in John 14, verse 6, perhaps says the most offensive, outrageous, ridiculous, intolerant thing in the history of mankind. He claims to be God himself, and then he claims to speak as the voice of God, and he says, there's one thing I need you to know. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Those are all that we call a definite article, the, right? If you said, uh, I am a baseball player at your school, people might go, for sure you are a baseball player. But if you walked into your school and you said, I am the baseball player at my school, that's a big claim, right? You're saying, of all the baseball players, I am the pinnacle, I am the precipice, I am the one, right? I am a king is a really bold statement, but it's not half as bold as I am the king, right? That definite article right there, it signifies when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying all other ways are wrong. All other truths are lies, and all other lives lead to death. This is Jesus' claim. If you're living your life, if you're living and you're breathing and you're converting oxygen to carbon dioxide and you're carrying out the life processes, but you don't know Jesus, you're dead. This is bold. He puts the majority of all of humankind in history, everyone that's ever lived, the majority of humankind he puts on blast. And he says, if you're not following me, you don't know the way. If you're not in me, you don't know the truth. And if you're not in me, then you're not really even alive. Because only in me, Jesus says, is there the way, the truth, and the life. Now, you and I have a, we have a responsibility. We can't just overlook that claim. That's a big one, right? Uh, One great theologian once said, and I agree with it, and I think this is a problem for a lot of us, 
Jesus, if correct, deserves to be your everything in your life. He deserves to be the central figure. He deserves to be what your whole life revolves around. Nothing is as important as him if what he said is true. Conversely, if what Jesus said is false, he should mean nothing to you. Get away from this idea. If Jesus claimed to be God and he wasn't God, then the very central point of his life was a big fat lie. But here's what our culture's done with Jesus. We go, well, I don't, I'm not gonna worship him as God. I'm not gonna follow him as savior. I'm not gonna bow to him as king. But he seemed like a pretty good guy. He seemed like a pretty good teacher. He kind of had that long hair look going on. He was kind of groovy. He told people to be nice to poor people. I like that guy. The issue is, if, if Jesus wasn't God, then the whole, do you know how many people in human history have had their heads cut off because they believe that Jesus was God when the cultures and governments that they were underneath said you're not allowed to think that? Do you have any clue how many people in the history of mankind that there's whole epochs of time that if you were holding this book in your hand in certain cultures, they would come and they would kill you immediately? Do you know how many, including Jesus' best friends, what happened to Jesus' followers? All of his disciples ended up doing what? Getting martyred for their faith, except for John, who writes this book, who was exiled on an island called Patmos all by himself, and at one point was boiled in hot oil. Their lives didn't go well, right? Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament was hung upside down and sawed in half. Thomas takes the gospel to Africa and he is killed at the end of a spear. Peter loves Jesus so much that when he's captured, they say, you can't preach about Jesus. And he says, it would be my great honor to die like Jesus died. I'm happy to die for him because he lives again. I'm not afraid of you guys killing me. Just do me the honor of killing me just like you killed Jesus. So what they do? They crucified him upside down. Why? Because they didn't even want him to have the honor of being crucified like Jesus. So you have to ask yourself this question. This is an important question for you to ask yourself in your own heart. Who is Jesus to you? And if he is just in the periphery of your life or if he's in the margin or if he's one part of it, you live your life, you do your thing, you've got your own identity, you're cool, you're groovy, sports is the most important thing for you, relationships is the most important thing for you, grades is the most important thing for you, social media is the most important thing, you gotta get your TikTok views up. If that's what's central in your life, but you go, no, but don't worry, Jesus absolutely plays a small role in my life. I got a newsflash for you. No, he doesn't. You see, Jesus can be your everything and he can be your nothing, but he can't be your something. The Bible doesn't give us that permission. He's either king and lord of your life or he's rejected. There is no third direction. And so tonight we talk about this idea, what are the truths of the scriptures? It's like the most pastoral thing. Like if I was your age and a pastor got up on the stage and they were like, guys, we all need to be reading our Bible more. I would have gone, duh, you would say that, pastor. There's nothing more pastory you can say than to stand on a stage and say, read your Bible more. Everyone's like, okay. <laughs> big, that was a big, that, that, like, that should make the headlines. A pastor told me to read my Bible more. I, that's, <laughs> that's not what I'm gonna do, okay? I'm gonna instead challenge why so many of us are disinterested in reading our Bible. I'm not here to defend the Bible. The Bible's like a lion. You just gotta unlock the cage. I'm not here to defend it. I'm here to challenge our hearts. 
I'm here because I believe the reason that so many of us find, like when you say the phrase, I should probably read my Bible more, right? Like if, if you get married someday and your wife or your husband says, hey, let's go out on a date. And you're like, I probably should. Doesn't feel good at all. No one goes, yay. Did you hear my husband? He said, I probably should, right? As if it's some kind of obligatory have to thing. And Satan, the great deceiver, has once again played this trick on our hearts. And the reason I think so many of us are disinterested in scripture is because we ask it the wrong question. We ask scripture the wrong question, and so it gives us what we think a lot of times is the wrong answer. So many of us, when we pick up the Bible, if you pick up your Bible, when we open it, we go, right? Have you ever done this before? God, show me whatever you want to teach me today. And then all the Israelites were circumcised. Okay, okay. If you don't know what circumcision is, ask your youth pastor. They would love to describe that for you. But we do. We, and we read the book, we read the Bible like we don't read anything else. We've given the Bible this unique place in our lives where we actually read it like we don't read anything else. I'm currently in the middle of reading uh, the Harry Potter series to my kids, right? And, okay, that's fine, whatever. Great, 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 great. We're talking through different belief systems. We're talking through all that stuff. And so it was kind of cool to dive into this. We just finished like our Chronicles of Narnia series. And now we're jumping into this. And anyway, it's, it was, it's been super interesting. But what you'll notice is that any of you who've ever read that series or any other series or any other book, we read the Bible like we don't read anything else in our whole life. And we wonder why it's disinteresting or boring or fails to capture your imagination. Because A, we read it wrong. And B, we ask it the wrong questions. Like, just imagine if you were like, oh, Harry Potter? Oh, man, I love Harry Potter. Uh, it's, like my, it's like, I orient my whole life. I believe that Harry Potter is the way, the truth, and the life. And I go, oh, you, so you've read, the, you've read the books. And you're like, oh, yeah, check this out. This is how you read Harry Potter. You go, uh, Professor McGonagall turned into a cat. What do I think this means for me today, right? This is how we read the Bible. We go, hmm, hmm, hmm. Neat story about a guy catching a bunch of fish. What does this mean to me? This is not the way the Bible was ever intended to be read, ever. You see, when you, when you ask the Bible more significant questions, when you really dig into what it says, the Bible again and again uses this, this phraseology and this verbiage. And the way that it talks about reading the Bible is it talks about it as if there's a state of emergency coming. When you read the Bible and the Bible discusses itself, it's kind of interesting what it does. The authors of scripture talk about the importance of scripture. A psalmist in, in Psalm chapter 119, he writes, your words of the scriptures are like honey to my lips. I, I can't get enough of them. Uh, Psalm chapter one says, blessed are those who do not sit in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of soft scoffers or seat in the sit of sinner, seat of sinners, but instead they meditate, they think about the word of the Lord day and night. They are gonna be like a tree that's been planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season and everything they does prospers. Another text in the Old Testament says, there's this guy, his name's Jeremiah, and he says, every word that you write, I eat. This guy literally, he takes a scroll and he eats it 
Why? Because he's demonstrating how important it is to have the word of God inside our hearts. Jesus, of all people, in John chapter 6, he makes it very clear. If you want anything to do with me, you must place the tenets of the scriptures and the tenets of Jesus so deeply in your heart that no one can take them out of you. So why does the Bible again and again and again put such a heavy importance on reading it? A lot of us, if we were asked that question, we're like, because you want to be like a better Christian. You want to be like, you know, there's like levels of Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? We have this in our heads. There's like the base people. Some of us are like, we're like base Christians. We kind of believe it. We don't really do everything the Bible says. Sometimes we disagree with the Bible, and that's okay. The Bible can say what it wants, but I'm going to do my own thing on this one. And then we're like, and then there's like level nine, like Bible nerds, and they like enjoy reading the Bible. They do everything it says. And if I want to get there someday, if I want to get to that level someday, maybe I'll read the Bible more, but I'm content, right? That's what we think to ourselves. I'm content with what I know. I'm content with what I understand. I'm content with what I've read. And I'm good with it. I'm good with just doing enough to get by. The Bible comes along and it says, friend, let me caution you. Let me warn you. Let me, let me, let me offer you an admonition. Let me offer you. There's, a, there's something coming in your life. There's a storm coming in your life. And if you don't know the scriptures and, you don't, and they're not flowing through your veins, here's what you need to understand about your life. When you are pressed, when you are in grief, when you are suffering, when you are hurt, when you're betrayed, when you're at war, when everything in your life goes downhill, and some of you have already experienced this at different points in your life, the truth of the scripture says that when that happens to you, whatever is most based foundational in your heart is what's going to spill out in that moment. It's not about moments like this at Hume Lake where everything's cool and everything's groovy and the majority of the people in here are following Jesus and your counselors are right there with you. Your youth pastors are there to answer questions. The Bible says that's great. And in those seasons, eat the word of the Lord as if it's like honey on your lips and ingest it, put it in your soul, memorize it, study it, understand it. But it doesn't say, because I want you to be a level nine Christian. That's not a thing. The Bible cautions us to know God's word for this reason. Because someday, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, Jesus makes a lot of promises in scripture, but not one of them has to do with you living an easy life. No matter how much we believe that as long as I, if, as, long as I follow Jesus, everything's gonna be great, the Bible never says that. In fact, the promises that Jesus makes sound a lot like this. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. Jesus says, the world hates me, and it's going to hate you even more. Jesus says, I'm here to send you out like sheep among wolves. You see, when you read the Bible, it says, there's a war coming for you. There's a storm coming in your life. There's pain that will knock on your door. And when that happens, and when you're pressed, and when you're crushed, and when you're squeezed, and when you're pushed, and when you're in suffering, and when you're in grief, and some of you already know what grief I'm talking about. Whatever is deepest in your soul is what will spill out in that moment. And the Bible cautions you that if the word of the Lord is not running through your veins, if you don't implicate it in your heart and you don't study it with your mind, when the storm comes, you will resort to whatever is most default in your heart. You will go back to a status, whatever is most firmly planted in your soul, when you bleed, you will go there. I guarantee it. 
I watch it happen all the time. I'm an apologist. So what I do is I go to different conferences. I debate college professors about the existence of God. Okay, this is part of my job. I have all the proof that God exists. I've got the evidence of his resurrection. I've got all these things. You want to know one of the most common questions people ask me when, when they say they don't believe in God? They say, if God is so good, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And it's an important question. The reason the Bible gives you for why you ought to study the truth of the Christian scriptures is not so you pass awanas. It's not so you're better than your friends at how fast you can find scripture. It's not so that you can advance to the next level of Christianity. It's not so you can be better than your friends. It's not so that you can walk around and go and lord over them and go, look, I know the Bible better than you. That's not why the Bible tells you you should know the Bible. The reason the Bible gives us to know it is it knows because of the sinful, broken nature of our world, for most of us in here, our greatest day of confusion is still to come. Your greatest day of suffering is still to come. The pain and the sting of betrayal is still to come. The divorce is still to come. The miscarriage is still to come. The infertility is still to come. The pain of your life is still ahead of you. And the Bible, like a loving father, beckons you and begs you, would you please plant the truths of the scriptures in your heart before the storm? Because if you wait until after the storm, you don't go back to the Bible. That's the way that we're created as humans. We lower our understanding of God and we match it to our pain. And here's what they do in the text. Here's John chapter one. I want you to catch something briefly before we kind of conclude with um, maybe part of my story that maybe can help you guys as we have this conversation. John chapter one, we see Jesus coming into the world and all this prophecy. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Then we get in the story, Buddy the bath giver, right? There's two different buddies. Buddy, the author, John, and then Buddy the bath giver, John the Baptist, okay? So what happens in the text, what happens in the Bible is Buddy the bath giver, thousands, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, the Old Testament says, there's gonna be a man He's going to be a crazy dude. He's going to eat locusts and wild honey. He's going to wear camel's hair. And he's going to yell like a voice in the wilderness. Or what did they say in the, the skit? I'm like a dog howling in the woods. It's a direct representation of an Old Testament prophecy where hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, the Bible writer says, there will be a man John the Baptist. And he's going to be like a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight paths for the king. And so we find in the early first century in, in modern day Israel, this man walked up wearing wild camel's hair, eating honey and eating locusts. And he starts yelling, repent, all of you. The kingdom of God is here. The one we've been waiting for is coming. The prophesied one has now stepped down into earth. Theo is here. Theo is actually the uh, Greek word for God. Theos means God. So uh, the Theo Christus, that actually means Christ is God or God is Christ, right? It's talking that the pup in the story is Jesus and the sheepdog, right, with all the hair, is crying out, this guy's coming and he's gonna take my pack from me. And it's good that he does because it's all about him. And what you watch then 
is through the text, people keep looking at Jesus and then looking at their Bibles and they're going, is it you? You see, for hundreds of years, we've been hearing about this coming Messiah, about when God would become man, when Theochristus would show up. We've been waiting for him. And then they held up their Bible next to Jesus. Why did people worship Jesus as king? Not because he was just compelling. Not because he was an interesting man. Not because he was taller. Not because he was super strong. They held up the Old Testament and they went, oh, I think this is the one we've been waiting for. You see, knowing scripture helps us to not be deceived. And this is what we see in this whole text. The reason they knew that Jesus was the son of God is because he'd been prophesied hundreds of years ahead of time. I'm gonna ask you a simple question as we move forward. And that is this. Um, what's your name? Knox. Knox? Yeah. K-N-O-X. Yeah. Knox, where are you from? Fres, yes. Okay, cool. All right, uh, Knox, if someone lit you on fire right now, not that I'm going to. I'm not about that kind of analogy. Right? I used to be a youth pastor. There was a day where I might. But um, Knox, if someone lit you on fire right now, what would you do? What should you do if you ever find yourself caught on fire? Okay. Knox, how old are you? 13. Knox said if he was on fire, he would stop, drop, and roll. Okay. Uh, how many of you uh, here know, have you you've heard of stop, drop, and roll before? Good. Okay. Sounds good. Um, what, re, what's your name? Gabby. Gabby enjoyed beating the staff in kickball today, which was not cool. Um, had a couple big kicks. Gabby, let me ask you a question. If you were caught on fire, what would you do? Gabby would stop, drop, Gabby, how old are you? I'm 19. 19. When's the last time you studied stop, drop, and roll? Like you, like 12 years ago, because so you're like seven. Sure. And then do you think, how, how many times a year do you go back over the curriculum of stop, drop, and roll? Never. Never, okay. Uh, who is the oldest person in the room? How old are we in the back? What's your name? Glenn. How old are you, Glenn? Can anyone beat 60? 61, No. Not 16, 60. Okay. We can? What are you? 65? Champion. Okay. And you're just here counseling junior hires. She's a queen. Okay. Um, what would you do if you were caught on fire? Same thing? Stop, drop, and roll? Yeah, it's pretty smart. When do you think you learned that? Elementary school. Okay. So... If you're 65 years old, that was, what, 40-ish, 50-ish years ago? Okay. How, how many times a year do you go back over the stop, drop, and roll curriculum? You don't even, like, watch a refresher course, you know, like a two-hour video on, like, is it drop, stop, and roll, stop, drop? You just remember it from your childhood? Okay, so you guys, that's a lot of grandkids. Yeah, that's great. What's my point? My point is simple. My point is, why do you think that when the people invented stop, drop, and roll, they used something simple, like a three-word phrase. Why would that be really important for someone to know if they're on fire? Yeah, you don't even raise your hand. Why? Yeah, <laughs> why is it important that it's easy to remember? Because imagine if like the rules for when you were on fire was like, 
follow these 18 steps if you're ever on fire, right? Like, number one, make sure there's no little kids around that you're going to step on. Number two, make sure that your stomach is full. You don't want to die of starvation in the middle of you dying of, of, of fire. It doesn't do that, right? Why? Because when you're in chaos... When your life is being threatened, when your world is crashing down, when everything is falling apart around you, we have to revert to simple truths. We have to. It's not complicated. Stop, drop, and roll. And a lot of the times, even if you did those out of order, you'd probably still be okay, right? If you started rolling around, you're like, I forgot to stop and drop. It's like, well, you're probably okay if you're, as long as you're rolling around, you know? And you don't even know it. One of your friends around you can be like, it's time to stop. You know, like, stop, drop, and roll, bro. It's time. You're on fire. Let me tell you why this conversation for me is so important and why I want this to be something that you take to heart. I want you to stop thinking of reading the Bible as some half to junk that is, it's obligatory that God goes, you better do it if you want me to love you. You better do it if you want. You better do it if you want to be a better Christian. You better. And I want us to stop opening up the text and going, what can you teach me more about myself? How can I live a better life? How can I be a better person? It's not where the Bible was written. The Bible was written that we would understand who God is and who we are in response to who he is and what he's done. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, if your heart isn't grounded in the truth of the scriptures, when that day comes, when that fire starts, when that storm hits, when that relationship ends, when the, when, the, when the injury threatens your career, when, when your worst day comes, this is when, whether or not you were consistent, diligent, and hopeful in the Christian scriptures really matters. I get through a lot of counseling as a pastor. I get to counsel marriages all the time. I get to counsel pre-marriage. I get to counsel intramarriage. I get to counsel divorce counseling. I get to talk to people who are on the brink of divorce. And do you want to know something that I've found in common? Marriages that fall apart, when you ask them what went wrong or what went right or what, what, what's going on in their marriage, they almost never talk about how well they vacation. They talk about how painful it is when they fight. If you ask me, how do you know a marriage is a good marriage? I would never go, well, let me see how they do when they're in Cabo and they're all hanging out and life is easy. That, that's not the definition of a good marriage. I don't, I don't care. It's almost irrelevant to me. You see, the war of our souls and the war of our marriages and the war of our hearts is almost never won and lost on the mountaintop. It's almost always won and lost in the valley. Who is God to you when everything is taken away? Who is God to you on your worst day of your life? And the Bible says that the majority of all of mankind, including people in this room, the majority of us will walk away from faith as we get older. And the number one reason why most of us will walk away from faith when we get older is because we'll experience some kind of suffering or some kind of pain that costs us the truth of what we know about God. He's good. 
on March 24th of last year, my fifth child was born. Her name's Finley. She's the light of my life. The most incredible little girl. My wife, uh, Paige, um, we thought we were going to give birth in a hospital, all that other stuff. She ended up giving birth in 59 minutes in the corner of our bedroom. So we were sitting there, no signs of active labor. She was 10 days late. And then all of a sudden, she's like, it's time. And I'm like, it's time to go to the hospital? She's like, no, it's time to have the baby. And I'm like, uh, what? Like, I mean, if you've ever met a superhero before, Paige is a superhero. She pushed the baby out in 59 minutes in the corner of our bedroom, and it was unbelievable. We didn't know if we were going to have a boy or girl. We left all of our kids a secret and all of our kids a surprise. And so she's holding Finley for at least an hour, and we just all thought it was going to be a boy. And then she finally handed it to me, and as she handed the baby to me, I just went, it's a girl, and everyone freaked out, and it was this really cool moment, and it was powerful. About two days later, my wife started complaining of having back pains, and we didn't really understand what that was, and so as she started complaining about back pains, we realized that she was having a hard time sleeping, so I called my friend who's a doctor, and the doctor said, well, I mean, she pushed out a baby in 59 minutes, you know, like maybe it could be a muscle strain, could be you've pulled something. I'm not quite sure what it is. He goes, but there's also like a 1% chance it could be what we call a pulmonary embolism, he said, so I'd like you to come in and get it checked out. I said, well, doc, like, what's a pulmonary embolism? And the doctor said, it's a blood clot on your lungs. It's very common for women, especially who are on um, th third, fourth, fifth pregnancies, to get blood clots in their legs uh, because they're sedentary or they don't move. And my wife, like, jazzercise all the time, like, holistic health coach, naturopathic, like, we don't eat gluten, we use essential oils, like, we're into witchcraft and stuff, you know, like, <laughs> Uh, oil of boil in a dead man's toe and some lemon essential oil and you'll be fine. So that's like our life, right? And so, um, so you just, it's kind of shocking when someone gives you a medical diagnosis where you go, what? You know, like pulmonary embolism, like this is for people who aren't active. This is for people who, you know, or they're predisposed to blood clots or their blood doesn't coagulate properly. This is who this is reserved for. And so... Um, we go to the hospital, and sure enough, she gets diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism. The danger of the pulmonary embolism is that 25% of all people who have it don't know it until they're dead. Because the blood clot moves from your lungs to your heart, and it kills you instantly. So, Paige, knowing this, gets really scared. You see, we, we had our fifth kid. We had our life laid out for us. We had our home in Bonzel. We had goats and chickens and dogs. We live on a farm on three acres, and we just kind of had our life laid out. Everything was going to be great. And then all of a sudden, this doctor out of nowhere comes and goes, oh, yeah, I'm glad you came in today because if you hadn't, I don't know that we'd be having this conversation next week. And while he meant that in a way that was benign, he meant that in a way that was innocent, uh, something kind of got triggered in my wife's brain. So that night we went back home. We, she started on a blood thinner medication to help take care of her pulmonary embolism. And then she woke up in the middle of the night and she thought that the blood clot had passed from her lungs into her heart. And so she wakes me up and she says, Chris, I think I'm dying. And which is just, it's just like the most shocking thing you can hear. Like you're, when your best friend, love of your life, like mother of your kids goes, I think I'm dying. You're like, your whole world just stops. You're like, excuse me, what did you just say? And I was like, she goes, I want to wake up the kids and tell them goodbye. And, and I'm, I'm like, well, no, just, just like slow down, slow down. I call, I call the ambulance. I call the doctor. I'm like, what, what, what do we do? And, and, the, and the guy says, it's very common when people have pulmonary embolisms for part of their heart to be under, have under provided oxygenated blood. 
So sometimes their hearts can flutter and it can feel like something's wrong. But in reality, it's just going to take a little while for the a blood thinner to work and get to that part of the heart again. And I'm sure she's going to be fine. So that gives me some confidence. It's still really scary, right? You feel like you dodge a bullet. You're like, whoa, you know, I was about to be a single dad of five kids. Like, well, I'm so glad that that was just a mistake. And, but something happened. Um, and that's that my wife got really afraid of going to sleep. You see, since this happened when she was asleep, she started telling herself in her brain, if I go to sleep, what if this happens and I never wake up? So she started that night not sleeping for 10 days straight. Now, the doctor said, if you put someone in a room and you take away food, water, and sleep, sleep almost always kills them first. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you do with someone who hasn't slept in 10 days? And he said, there's almost no literature on it because it's so rare. And he said, after one day, after two days, you, people can start experiencing hallucinations. They can start thinking they see things that they don't really see. He says by day four or five, your brain, which is neuroplastic, which means it's kind of like Play-Doh, it literally starts to rewire itself. And its old way of preserving itself can turn on itself. And the way that you used to think can get cross-wired. And who you know yourself to be can get switched up. And this is what trauma does. This is why a lot of people who are in uh, firefights overseas, who have experienced war, who are our heroes and veterans who have come back home, they experience deep trauma, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, because as trauma hits them in their life, as these different things occur to them, even people who get in car accidents, their brain can begin to rewire itself. So I'm starting to ask the question, like, well, like, you know, what do we do? How do we resolve this? How do we fix this? Something really unusual happens on night seven. What I would do every day is I would go to bed with her at like, um, I would go to bed at like six o'clock. Our friends and family would stay up with her until she was ready for bed, I would sleep from like six to midnight and then I knew that I was on call to be up with her for the rest of the night. And we would go to the doctor, we went to the emergency room every day for nine days straight. And every time we went to the emergency room, I would say, she didn't sleep at all last night. And the doctor would go, okay, here's this next thing we're gonna give her, here's this next medicine we're gonna try and nothing worked. Her brain was so powerful. The idea that sleeping was gonna kill her was so powerful that she just would not go to sleep. The problem is the same willpower that kept her awake was now working against her. On day seven, she started talking in a way that was making little to no sense. She started talking about having suicidal ideation, thinking about how important it was going to be for her to take her own life because she couldn't do this to our family anymore. And it, was, it, was, it, it began this psychosis and this level of not understanding who she was. She, she was, had started having multiple personalities. And, and this is a woman who, like, through her whole life... Never struggled with depression, never struggled with anxiety, never struggled with any mental illness. She didn't even really understand it. And now we find her with this intense medical diagnosis. And now she's starting to express these things. So the doctor said, you need to get her into trauma treatment. He said, the two responsibilities you have is to get her trauma line in her brain down. Get the trauma line in her brain down. So you and I, we, we all have a trauma line in our brain and it can swell and it can move and it can form, it can reshape itself and they can actually measure it. So we did this brainwave optimization treatment and they go and they measure your trauma line. And our trauma line in our brains, for most of us, registers about a two or a three. Someone who comes home from Iraq registers about a 30 to a 35. Paige registered a 64. Which meant that she was living in a constant fight-or-flight state. 
She did not know who she was. She did not know what she was doing. She would do erratic things and say erratic things, and it was really hard to find. There would be these moments where you would go, I think, I think this is my wife again, but by and large, it was just completely confusing, and she was just out. And it was just hard to make sense of what she was saying. So I asked the doctor, what do we, like, how do I get her better, you know? Because you start getting confused. Because if you worship Jesus and you follow God and you're a pastor in particular, you think, I've given my life to this. And then all of a sudden, doctors and nurses and people are talking about the idea that your wife's brain has turned on itself. And now your wife, who is the mother of your five kids, starts talking about ending her own life. And there's a moment that happens when you just start to look up and go, what are you doing? Like my prayers, they, the prayer, there was no like, there was no gentleness in my prayers for this whole season where you just kind of go, what are you doing? God, if there is a God, do something. You call yourself the great physician in scripture and here's my wife and we're not begging for some, I, I didn't ask for like a new house or a, a new car. I just want my wife to be healed. I want to continue to do your work and I think that this can be great for the community. She gets healed. Maybe, maybe God, maybe you want me to like, to be a mental health advocate for the church, to, to talk about it more because it's so criminally understood in the church. Great, just give me my wife back. I promise I'll do whatever you want. Just give me my wife back. So her psychiatrist says, Go back and do something normal. I had been taking off of work for four months taking care of her, taking her from appointment to appointment to appointment, trying to figure out how do I solve this? How do I fix this? We'd spent all that we had had. We didn't have anything left. We had no solutions left. And so the psychiatrist says, go back and do something that you would do that you guys love to do. What is home for you? And last year, at this exact time of year, Middle of July, right before her birthday, on July 21st, was my time to teach at Hume Lake. So we come up the mountain, and the doctor gave us one thing to do. Keep her away from trauma. If you want help, and you want her to get healed, and you want her to start moving forward in her therapies, you have to keep her away from trauma. Got it. I will do whatever I can. I'm teaching in Meadow Ranch about this exact day last year when one of the staff of Hume Lake starts calling me off the stage. Her name's Monica. She goes, Chris, come here, come here, come here, come here. And I'm like wrapping up. And I'm like, did I, you know, I legitimately, I'm, I'm not joking. I'm like, did I go long? Did I like, did I say something off? Like, I'm presenting the gospel. Like, can I at least finish? And as I, as I walk off stage, I finish the prayer and I walk off stage and I hear on her walkie-talkie, someone say, get Chris Hilkin to the infirmary right now. So I'm literally sprinting across Hume Lake's campus. Monica was driving a golf cart. I said, I can't even wait for, I, I'm not going to take the trails. I'm the dead of night. I'm sprinting across campus. All the lights are off. I, I don't know what's going on. And when I get there, a firefighter meets me and he says, here's what we know. Your son, Leo, became instantly and completely unresponsive. At the same time, we realize that your, all of your wife's sleep medicine is gone. And then he told me this phrase, and I can, I can never forget his face. He says, Chris, I need you to understand something. If your son took all of your wife's sleep medicine, we know it, the potency of it, the power of it, we can't life light him. It's at night. The closest hospital is two hours away. We don't have the mechanisms to pump his stomach. If that's what happened... We're not going to be able to. We're not going to be able to stop this. 
So he told me, he said, I want you to get in the van, get in your van. I want you to follow the ambulance. My wife was holding Leo, unresponsive and unconscious, in the back of an ambulance. And the, the fireman said, I want you to follow us down the mountain. We're going to meet another ambulance in, at the bottom of the hill to take him down into Fresno and to take him to a hospital. And we're going to go as fast as we can. And he said, Chris, if you see our brake lights turn on and stay on, it means we are, that your son's um, code blue and we're going to try to resuscitate him. But I just got to reiterate to you, you need to be ready because if this is what's happened, there's just nothing we can do about this. Let's go. And so I'm like getting in my car, and there's like, it, it's like the most frustrating thing, you know? Like you, you, you think you, you, you sign up to follow Jesus, and that there's some, there's an element to it where wh- regardless of what we know the truth to be, don't we just feel intrinsically like, God, you got to protect me here. Like, you got to do, you got to intervene. Like, and I remember just screaming in my van down the mountain. I'm just yelling at God. And I remember telling him, I'm like, if this is your big ploy, like, if this is your big thing, like, you want, you want me to have some crazy testimony and I go tell people that my kid died and, like, this is going to be part of my story, I don't want to follow you. Like, I'll go sell insurance. Like, I'll go be a plumber. I don't care. I don't want to be a pastor anymore because I don't want to deal with this anymore. Just give me my wife back and give me the life of my son like it just felt like there was no relent it felt gratuitous at some point it's just like the the pain the suffering just kept getting lumped on me you couldn't fix it you couldn't do anything and I just remember getting so angry about it we get down the hill no one knows what's going on with Leo for whatever reason simultaneously that night my son Brady dumped all my wife's pills on the toilet while my son Leo was diagnosed with acute onset cerebralitis, completely unrelated, but acute onset cerebralitis is extremely rare. We had to go to three hospitals to even get him diagnosed. The problem is, even though it ended up being, it's, just, it's, a, it's a, a neurological response to the onset of certain bacterial infections, we thought he was gone. So I was sitting in the hospital with my wife, not know, having any answers, and I watched my wife's face, and I remember what the doctor said. Keep her away from trauma. And my wife, who had already felt like she was holding on by a thread, it's like her eyes had glazed over. And I knew, we, we went back down into town, and, and, and I'm online, and I'm on Google, and I'm like, what is the best PTSD care place on planet Earth? And I find a place in Arizona. And I talked to one of the guys at the church that I was working at, and he goes, make sure it's covered by insurance. And I, like, I didn't mean to be rude, but I just said, like, are you serious? You think I care how much this place costs? Like, if it means getting my wife back, if it means saving her life, if it means having any sense of normalcy, I told him, I said, if we're standing on the side of the road naked with no clothes, with no home, with no cars and no job, but I get my wife back and my kid's okay, I'm, I'm rich Man, I don't care about money. I don't care how much it co- I'll sell my kidney. I'll sell, I'll sell anything. Like, just, yeah, I just remember telling the people when, I, when we showed up. I said, here's my wife's issue. Here's the thoughts that she's having. Here's the situation she finds herself in. Here's the trauma. And I remember handing her off this place in Tucson, Arizona, and just thinking, God is good. Even in the midst of all this junk and all this chaos, there's a place. God has created doctors and he's created medicine. He's created therapies and he's created ways for there to be something to fix my wife, to give us our life back. On July 31st of last year, she killed herself in that hospital. 
And that's the moment. That's when it matters, you know. When you get a phone call from three people and they say, I'm excited I was Paige. It's my time to talk to Paige every day. The day before, I talked to her about my run to Costco with all five kids. And I thought I was some kind of like heroic champion because I survived, even though she did it all the time. And I was so proud of myself. And I remember telling her, like, you're a hero. Like, this is 30 days, but, it, but it's going to be the rest of our lives. So just get better. Like, you're our hero, and you've got it. And, she, and then the phone call comes from Tucson the next day, and I'm thinking, it's time to talk to her again. And the guy just says, like, hey, I'm Paige's psychiatrist. This is our lawyer, and this is the president of the hospital. We're all on the phone here together. And he said, Mr. Hilkin, this morning your wife made an attempt on, on her own life, and, and she was successful. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I know like, I know English language, so I know what you just told me, but, like, what the heck did you just tell me, you know? And I just, like, collapsed and up like a pile of myself on the floor as all the implications start running through your head, you know? Like, you can go to seminary, but you ever told a seven-year-old that their mom's not coming back? Have you ever told a seven-year-old their mom isn't coming back and it's because she took her own life? Have you ever tried to convince a four-year-old that their mom loves them, but she also killed herself and you're never going to see her again? Do you know how confusing it is to a four-year-old when you tell them over and over again that mom's not coming home from the hospital and every night they ask you, when's mom coming home? They just don't get it. I got to call her dad. I got to explain to her dad why the day that he handed her off to me that I failed in my responsibility to love and to protect her. I've got to like call her mom it's just like, there's nothing prepares you for that moment, you know? But I just remember like such a vivid thought of being so intensely angry at God. And thinking, I think this is the moment where either this Jesus thing and this God thing and this Bible thing, this is either who I am like, I either lean on this right now, or it never meant anything. Because I knew the truth. You guys get that? Like, I, I, I know the Bible. I teach the Bible. I know in its original languages. I've studied it. I have degrees in the Bible. And I'll tell you what, in that moment, when you hear that your whole life has come down on itself... It's still, everything just came flooding back about what am I going to do now? God is not good. He isn't care. He is not gentle. He is not faithful. He is none of those things. And how you feel about God in that moment is so intense and it was so severe. And so some of us, when we like talk about reading the Bible, I'm just so sick of us having this conversation about let's read the Bible more so that we can be better people. Let's read the Bible more. Guys, you read the Bible because the world is going to come at you. And when you get cut, what do you bleed? You either bleed the truth of scripture or you bleed the culture of this world. And the Bible makes it clear. The majority of all mankind, the majority of the people in this room will finish your life apart from Jesus. The majority of the people sitting in this chapel right now will face an eternal condemnation in hell apart from God. The majority of us. And do you want to know the biggest distinction between those who stay and those who go? It's those who have the word written on their hearts when your worst day hits. 
when suffering comes, what do you bleed? Do you bleed this false theology that says God's always gonna protect me and take care of me? Or do you bleed the truth of scripture where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but I hold you close and I've overcome the world. And there is a kingdom that is not of this world that is coming and I'm gonna bring them, I'm gonna bring you to be with me also. But in the meantime, this world sucks. And it's gonna be marked by pain. It's gonna be marked by suffering. It's gonna be marked by murder. It's gonna be marked by mental illness. It's gonna be marked by suicide. What do you do with it? Is this whole Christianity thing just something you do every once in a while on the weekends? Is it just your Christmas and Easter thing that you do? Or will you firmly plant the word of God in your heart so when your day comes, you still stand firm on this one truth? God, I don't feel like you're close to me. I don't feel like you're good in this moment. But I know that my Redeemer lives. It's not that I feel that you're good right now. It's that I know that you're good right now. Why? Because your word has told me that you're good. So many of us will be deceived because we will dictate God's character by the movement of our hearts and feelings. Do you know where that's dangerous? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked beyond tameability. So I ask you a question. What questions do you ask when you open this text? Is it all about you feeling better about yourself? Is it a self-help guide? Is it something that you're gonna do when you get older, when you care about the book? Or are you gonna start seeding the truth of God in your heart? And I can tell you right now, if you give me a magic eight ball and ask me the question, will these people remain in Christ? I will only have to ask one or two questions. Who are they surrounded by and how seriously do they take the word of God? That's it. I can predict the majority of people's outcome in their life. Who do you hang out with and what do you do when it comes to the word of God? This isn't trumped up theology, guys. This is real life. I'm sick of listening to sermons where everyone talks about how good everything's gonna be. This is reality. This sucks, man. But God is still here. He's here in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your pain and your weakness. But how will you make sense of it? What will you do with it? It's one question long. Will you see the word of God, Psalm 1? Will you see it deeply in your heart? And on that day comes when you bleed, will you bleed the truth of God's text? Or will you, from the empty brokenness inside, will you appeal to your own heart and go, well, if I don't feel like God's good, then he is not good. If I don't feel like he's near, then he is not here. And if I don't feel that he is love, then he is not love. There's a war in, for your soul right now as we speak, and if you don't feed the truth of God's scripture into the battle, you will lose. Your counselor, why do you think your counselors sit here? Why do you think your youth pastors take a crappy paying job to be here? Why do you think there's bivocational people here who work as a plumber and then come up to spend a week in your nasty cabins and talk to you about Jesus? Do you want to know why? Because the stakes couldn't be any higher and we will watch the majority of you walk away from faith. The majority of you, we will have moments where we watch you walk away from Jesus. We will talk about this in church. That's the pain of a pastor. The pain of a pastor is I watch people turn to the world and seek their hope in it instead of Jesus. Nothing hurts more than that. This isn't some stupid sermon about reading your Bible more so you can be a better person. It's seeding the truth of God in your heart because the war is on and the pain is coming for you and Jesus promises it and every word he said is true. What will you do? 
What will you believe? And when you get cut, what comes out? Is it his word or is it your feelings? That is the great decider of most of our fates. Because suffering is the altar that a lot of us will sacrifice Jesus on someday. I'm not like on the other side of this. Like I, I'm not some, some guy who's like come through this deep pain and I'm like, now look at me because I've got it figured out. I don't. I, I think it hurts so bad. Our one year anniversary of passing is in two weeks. Her birthday's on Thursday. This sucks. It's confusing, but I'll tell you what, life without Jesus is so much more confusing. In Christ, I know these truths. One day I will see my beloved again. I know that she lives because her Redeemer lives. I know that she knew the gospel. She knew the truth of it. And although her, her brain had been hijacked, that she's going to have her first birthday in heaven. And I, can't, I couldn't be more excited for her. These are the truths and the hopes that I know from the text. But I'm not going to stand here as someone who's going, worship is easy for me right now because it's not. Like, when we sing good, good father, that's hard, man we sing a song and it, it's, it says why would he fail now he won't it was this, this song that we played last week in Ponderosa and it was like this question you've never failed me yet and if you haven't failed me yet why would God start now he won't do you want to know what it feels like when your wife kills herself it feels like God failed you that's how it feels the question is do you bank your life on what you feel or do you bank your life on what is true that separates all mankind. And I want you on the day where you close your eyes in death to have a firm, fixed foundation, the truth of God's scripture, rather than the wishy-washy sand foundation of this world, because I love you. And I want you to know him, and this is how we know him. Not through our feelings, not through sitting and meditating out in the open woods. He speaks through his word, and he wants to talk to you, because he knows what's coming even if you don't. Would you pray with me? Jesus, there's a lot of things that are confusing in life. There's a lot of things that are difficult. There's a lot of pain that's already in this room that they've experienced in their life. There's a lot of pain that's to come. But God, we know these truths of your scriptures that you are in control, that you love us, that you are sovereign, that you are powerful. And God, in my life where I don't feel like you are, would I submit all those things to you? Because at the end of the day, God, I'm just a dumpster fire. I don't know what's right and wrong. I don't know what's good and bad. And I can't see the future. I don't know, the, I don't know everything that you know. And so sometimes in the middle of my life without all that perspective and that truth and, that, and your will and your plan, I can sit here in the middle of my mess and just feel like, where are you, God? God, when I open your scriptures, it says that you know the end from the beginning. You are sovereign and good in everything that you do. Would you submit my heart to those truths instead of letting my heart steer the ship of my life? God, our culture begs us to follow our heart no matter what it costs us, but your word begs us to follow your truth regardless of where it leads us. For all of our hearts sitting in this room, would your truth of your word trump the feelings of our heart when they are in disalignment. We love you. We know that you're good. We know that your word is true. 
would you seat that in our heart so when that day when the fire hits, that it would be so foundational to us, like stop, drop, and roll, we would know exactly the truth of who you are and who we are in response to that. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.